Sequel Cast 2 and Friends is a part of the HyperX Podcast Network. You want the wheel? Here, take the wheel! After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast, and they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast, and your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show will now begin. Hello, and welcome to Sequel Cast 2 and Friends, a podcast looking at movies and a franchise one film at a time. We are part of the HyperX podcast network uh and we're kicking off a, a look at a new series of films this is something thrasher has been wanting to do since we started uh sequel cast as a podcast uh, way it's back in 2009 uh, yeah as as the the song at the end of uh, uh first blood the first rambo movie goes it's a long road when you're on your own uh or, or something like that and uh, yeah we're, we're looking at the toxic avenger quadrilogy so uh, I'm Matt, uh, with me as Thrasher. I'm not just another pretty face. And Alex. Hey, Mom, it's me, Melvin. Right, so it is... Yeah, I mean, this is the movie that made Troma. Uh, Troma is the, I think, still the longest-running American independent film company. That is um, correct. Lloyd Kaufman started a film company because a he liked movies and had worked in some movies as a um, location scout and uh, as an actor, including and, Rocky. Uh, yes, yeah, and Rocky. Yep, uh, worked with John Adelson on on a few things. Who, who directed uh, uh, the first Rocky film um, and the fifth one? And in fact, Lloyd Kaufman is a bum and he has a cameo in both movies. Ah, nice. It's, it's funny, I remember that... watching this thinking that. I was like, so is this Troma's Robocop? But it predates Robocop by about three, four years. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, another thing worth mentioning is Lloyd Kaufman was good friends with Stan Lee, and they had written a few screenplays that they never could get made into a movie. But I, I think, you know, there, there's that um, influence. And, and when I was, uh, I, I guess, before we talk about uh, impressions on the film, I mean, I didn't know what trauma was until uh, in middle school. I made friends with a, a friend of mine called called Zach. Um, and now, he, could you describe his attitude toward Legos? <clears throat> attitude toward Legos. Um, and I don't know what he liked about Legos, but he he had the entire trauma library on videotape or at least like a dozen tapes. Uh, three of which, of course, were the Toxic Avenger at the time trilogy. Um, and it, it was really something where, uh, even on videotape, Troma had a lot of these like trailers and kind of special feature stuff before the DVD market started. So they were kind of ahead of the game on that. Yeah, and and it's not it's not just Lloyd Kaufman. There's also it's like Michael Hers, who is practically his psychic his uh, silent mm-hmm. partner. Like Michael Hers does not like to appear on camera. He's co-directed a lot of Lloyd Kaufman's movies, but like 
he mainly wants to sit in an office and handle trauma from the business side right now. He's always been more about the business than the creative stuff, although he certainly has some artistic chops. Um, although, interestingly enough, if you do want to see what Michael Hers looks like and hear his voice, uh, I believe on the Toxic Avenger 4 DVD, they found an old video promo that they gave to independent video stores to hype up trauma, and he appears on that. Oh, well. Um, that is basically the East Coast answer to Roger Corman, I feel like. Yes. Yeah. It, in a lot of ways, yeah. And, 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 this is, and this is the movie that put them on the map. They had released some interesting oddball movies. Some uh, Interestingly enough, the first movie they released was not one that they made themselves. That was Bloodsucking Freaks, which is one of my absolute favorite movies that I think makes a very powerful statement about the nature of art. Um, and the <laughs> tripartite relationship between the artist, the audience, and the critic. Um, oh. But then they released a bunch of like screwball, like grossed out screwball comedies like Squeeze Play and the, and the Last Turn On. But this is the movie that put them on the map. This is the movie that made them internationally famous. This is this is the movie that catapulted the studio into a whole nother level. I mean, how how often do you create a character that overnight becomes iconic and that people are still doing stuff with today? Yeah, it's pretty wild. And, like, the AIP reference to Corman is that, like, when you see a trauma trailer, you know it's, like, either Lloyd Kaufman or someone in the company narrating the trailer. It's, you know, the same people cutting the trailers and editing the trailers and putting the movies together. And the narration is probably the same guy who also narrated the trailer. And it's a, it's a very, like, kind of family atmosphere. Yes, I mean, Lloyd Kaufman was uh, one of the two directors of photography on this film. Right. Um and um, James London did the rest of it. Uh, I think mainly because Lloyd didn't want to do it. Um, well, you can tell and, this is the kind of film where if you were a production assistant, you were probably also in craft services wardrobe and, <laughs> you know, salary. Right, we're, we're very likely going to have a guest of um, someone who was on the crew uh, for Toxic Avenger uh, 4 um, nice. when we get there. Nice. And, and the documentaries on their show that they, you know, if there's food on set at all, it's like government uh, cheese sandwiches. <laughs> well, and, well, that's that, that's a longstanding thing. Is that the yeah. trauma can only promise that the craft services will just have cheese sandwiches, <laughs> right? Like no one, no one gets uh, paid typically, or if they do, it you know, it, it it's truly a labor of love. A lot of the fan, the fans love to to help in these films and even become actors and even. Uh, I mean, I, I was, I did meet Lloyd Kaufman at, uh, I think the first time I went to Dragon Con, I just met him and shook his hand. I didn't, I was poor, I didn't have any money, but I said, oh, I like your movies and stuff. And he was very nice. And then later on, I was wandering around and I got to witness uh, uh, a random person approach Lloyd Kaufman with his zombie movie on videotape. Nice. And the fan was a bit uh, excited and manic and, and, and all the kind of things you'd expect. And Lloyd Kaufman is just, uh, was just really polite and he always dresses in a suit and he um, uses whatever local trauma fans are in town to be in the, the taxi suit for, for um, promotions. I mean, one of my friends got to be in the taxi suit when awesome. he was in Portland one time just because he's six foot whatever. And I think they were using like Yahoo uh, groups or something at the time to, to recruit people to, to do yeah. these things. He's so. also a resume builder. And basically, if you're not an idiot and you know the rudimentary machinations of filmmaking, 
you can get on a set and become a production assistant. I mean, I remember like just kind of like yeah. showing up at shoots and I just start doing stuff. Like if you know what a C stand is or what a click light is, you can run <laughs> around and be a gopher. And at the end of the day, I got cut a check just because like I literally I just showed up. I was like, hey, I'm here. Was well, it for drama or what, what kind of a thing was it for? It was a commercial for um, uh, some college in New York State. That's neat. Yeah, and, that, and that's and that's a, a a grand tradition at Troma. You know, very very often people will be will be hired to be a gopher or production assistant, and then there will be dead man's boots productions as people muster out of the production, and you'll gradually be promoted, and sometimes you'll end the production as assistant director. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, and and you look at um, I mean, a famous example. I think of someone from Troma that you, you could say you know kind of made it or crossed over to mainstream is uh, James Gunn, who lately has, has done you know some superhero movies. We just did uh, talked about his movie um, Suicide Squad or The Suicide Squad. Excuse me, I forget which uh, what's the name of his because the titles are so similar. And he did the the first two. Guardians of the Galaxy movie, and it looks like he's doing the third one, and then, um, and who knows, you know, what he'll do next. But yeah, he he's probably the most notable, and and he tries to give Lloyd Kaufman a cameo in everything he does, and we haven't seen Lloyd Kaufman yeah. on Peacemaker yet, so I'm wondering when he's going to show up. Um, but he's not the he's not the only one. Samuel L. Jackson's first movie was Death by Temptation, another trauma movie. Nice. Uh, uh, Carmen Electra did a trauma movie. Uh, mm -hmm. Kevin, Billy Kevin Bob Costner. Thornton. Yeah, Kevin Costner, Billy Bob Thornton. Yeah. Kevin Costner notoriously, uh, what was it called? Like, like it's like Kitty's Beach House or something like that, or Beach the Beach, beach Fantasy. Yeah. He notoriously tried to buy the rights for the movie from Troma. And then that tipped off trauma to how valuable that movie must be. <laughs> so they reissued it on video and DVD. <laughs> So his attempt right, I mean, to buy it out so no one would see it caused a whole new generation of people to buy it and see it. Yeah, and, and, and Troma, you know, it, it always financially they they um, have good years and bad years, but sometimes they, they hang on by the skin of their teeth. But I think more specifically with Toxic Avenger, um, when, you know, Ninja Turtles was a thing, they went to the same uh, company that did the cartoon, uh, that financed the cartoon, which, which is a, a toy company, Playmates, right? And they uh, said, hey, yeah. can you... And and can you do a toxic uh, Avenger cartoon? It only lasted for one season for reasons that are unclear, but it was still successful enough where it was big in Germany. It had a toy line. They did video games and all the different systems at the time. Well, it was a pretty um, big season, though, because it was done for first-run syndication. I think there's like 60 episodes. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, I remember that series when I was a kid. And it was written by, I think, Chuck Lorre. Um, who, who later became a big producer of um, famous sitcoms and stuff. But he he did the theme song for Toxic Crusaders like he did for Ninja Turtles. But he wrote, I think, most of the episodes of the uh, Toxic uh, Crusaders. And in that, you know, he has um, friends with a, a guy with a big nose. I think is one of the more memorable ones. And it's uh, more... No, no Zone, yeah. No, no Zone. And it's, um, you know, always has a political message that's not subtle uh usually like pro ecology pro the little guy um so i mean yeah toxic avenger alex when you saw it had you was it like on videotape was it on television what was this was something that i had always 
thought I had actually seen just because it was so like, you know, present in like the cultural conversation, you know, with like the toys and the cartoons and the many volumes. So by the time I actually like approached the film in preparation for this episode, I was like, I don't think I've ever actually seen this film start to finish. Hmm. You you were probably right, because this the, the Toxic Avenger trilogy was all over late night cable, but it showed up on such weird networks at such weird hours that that you could just come in in the middle. Yeah, it was might funny. not be able to stand getting to the end. <laughs> yeah, I just remember thinking, I was like, oh, I, I must have seen this. I know I've seen it. And then I started it and I was like, I, I've never seen the start to finish. I, I was aware of the character. So basically, I just saw it for the first time last night. Cool. Oh, and Andromeda didn't get distribution in big chains like Blockbuster Video or things like that. Um, yeah, you have to go not... to the indie place. And I remember mm-hmm. like, they had a whole like trauma section in one of the video stores in my hometown. And it was always like the owner was like, oh, it's such crap. Like, don't even bother. You know what I mean? Like rent a real movie. You know, and he always <laughs> recommended something probably terrible. Like that. Well, there is something with, with the trauma movies that um, – you can tell they're not high budget, but I think that's part of their charm. And I, I would say oh, cool. it has almost kind of like a splatterpunk aesthetic. I can agree like with that. People, uh, actors, are from you know sometimes professionals, sometimes not, um, but they always look like normal people. No one really looks like a movie star in these things, and uh, that's, that's kind of the charm. And I think they 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 send a good message in the midst of squishing heads, <laughs> kind mm-hmm. of. Uh, you know, like kind of fangoria gore effects that um, Woodcockman loves to do. Well, and beyond, I, I go on beyond that, though, and that's something about trauma. Trauma, in a way, is fearless. A trauma movie will show you things that no other production would dare show you, and I really respect them for that. Exactly. And with um, trauma, it's you know, the way Toxic Avenger came about is they had done some of those sex comedies, like uh, like you had mentioned, uh, along with other films. They had the the distribution rights too uh, that they did not make in house, like Blood Sucking Freaks, and uh, they they saw a headline in um, I think Variety, the the big uh, you know newspaper for the movie industry, and it said uh, horror films are dead. And Lloyd Kaufman said, Ah, okay, so we're going to do a horror film. Of course, <laughs> after that happened, um, you had things like Halloween and Friday the 13th and, and so forth. But but when they got Nightmare the money together, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, of course. And and when they did Toxic Avenger, um, they, uh, initially it was going to call be called like Health Club Horror and, and things like that. And it was a marketing person that suggested the Toxic Avenger and also the tagline, the first superhero from New Jersey. <laughs> yeah, that's and awful. Toxic Avenger is such a great title because sort of like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it brings to mind a lot of different things. It gives you a and free movie in your head, right? It, yes, well said. It it yeah. communicates like the tone. It it's an absurd title. It's also not super long, and uh, oh, Toxie looks different in all the film. He sounds uh, different. Yeah. Uh, is, pro- is he played by a different dude? Yeah, he's played uh, yes. by a different dude in in most of the films. In in, in some films, well, th- th- we'll talk about this more when we get to Toxic Avenger Two. Three people play him in Toxic Avenger Two, but there's some uh-huh. behind the scenes stuff about that that I'll save for when we do that episode. Cool. It's yeah, funny, um, like. Go ahead. 
I've been, you know, with like vinegar syndrome and arrow and all that stuff. Like, you know, I've encountered some like really cheap movies. Like I just watched the, the William Griffey collection and uh, stuff like, you know, the hooked generation, the psychedelic priest. And like, you know, these movies are low budget, but like some of these movies feel like truly cheap. You know, Toxic Avenger is a low budget film, but they put, I mean, it's a cliche to say they put every dollar on the screen, but it looks pretty damn good for what it is. Like the effects are pretty solid. You know, it looks like a real movie. Like it's well lit, well shot. It looks decent. You know, it's easy to watch. It's got a good flow to it. Uh, the effects are really well done. I mean, yeah, for- and, and, and smartly, there's a scene in which uh, you have, um, you, you don't see Toxie's face for quite some time. Exactly. And it's very deliberate. Yeah, and like low budget, yeah, but never ever to the film's detriment, not for a second. Well, I think part of it is because they, they, so many of the scenes are filmed in real places, like the, like the health club, that's a real health club that I think was like closed for renovations at the time, which is why they were able to film in there. And so you get all the equipment and the other thing, and this is kind of a twofold thing. This is the first time that Tromaville is a place in the films. And from Mm. this movie on, like, Tromaville kind of becomes its own cinematic universe and has overlap with other Lloyd Kaufman, Michael Hurst productions. Um, And they load Tromaville with people. There are so many extras in so many scenes. It really feels like a living, breathing community. And there's about six characters uh, of, of there's like roughly six characters that they keep finding ways to put in different environments because they all go to the health club, but then we mm-hmm. see them all in other places around Tromaville. They're like yeah, just like funny. the locals that everybody knows, and it and I and that brings so much life and energy to this movie. It is funny oh, too because it's yeah. so like anachronistic, like it's Tromaville, but yeah, they're walking around and very obviously what is New York City. You can see the twin towers and everything. It is mm-hmm. just. It's just funny because it's again, it's just anachronistic. It's not meant to be taken very seriously, obviously. Oh, so Mark Torgel, he plays uh, Melvin before he he turns into the Toxic Avenger, and he was just a Troma fan who had um, worked for Troma, I think initially as a PA, and then acted in some other movies they did. And he just had a real goofy, weird sense of humor, and so they had him in the lead for this. Um, when we talk about Toxic Avenger Part Three. Uh, there, there's stuff with the plot where um, they uh, Toxie temporarily turns back into human, and um, Mark Torgel was uh, wanted 50 more dollars to come back and play the part, and Lloyd <laughs> wouldn't do it, so they hired someone else. And that, and, and Lloyd Kaufman later says he regrets that. I mean, another one of uh, Lloyd, Lloyd Kaufman has done a, a series of books, and and frankly, you know, pretty good. I don't know if you call them documentaries, really. They're quite long, but it's like, you know, make your own damn movie, produce your damn movie, uh, things along those lines. And he talks about how if he had an extra $20, he could have had Madonna in her very first movie. (laughs) Yeah, she just moved to New York. Yeah, Madonna had almost been cast, and I think it was Squeeze Play. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and, oh, and uh, speaking of which, Marissa Tomei is in this movie. She was one of the extras in the health club. Oh, that's awesome. Right. Like a, a, a lot of the actors are right out of NYU or, or whatever, or, or other um, acting schools. So there's people that had the chops. And then you had people like Mark Corrigal, who uh, gives 
um, let, let's say a cartoonish performance, but I think it really works. I mean, he's not just a nerd. He's like a super, super nerd. And uh, rewatching this movie, like I totally forgot about, um, they put him in a tutu, these bullies put him in a tutu to try to humiliate him. But then for the whole film, Toxie has like part of the burn tutu fused to his body. It's time to tap in with the HyperX Quadcast S microphone. The stunning HyperX Quadcast S features dynamic, customizable RGB lighting, a convenient tap-to-mute sensor, and four selectable polar patterns, so we can broadcast crystal clear audio, whether you're gaming, streaming, podcasting, or impressing your remote colleagues and classmates. So what are you waiting for? Join the Quad Squad and tap in today with the HyperX Quadcast S microphone. So I, uh, a lot of stuff has been happening with me over the past year, so I might as well get this all out now because I don't know if I covered it before, but I am a trans woman, though you can tell by my voice, I do not make a good case for that. Um, and something that I've always loved about Toxie as a character is that he has gender nonconforming behavior, and that that is so, mm. and that, that is largely manifested in the fact that no matter how strong or powerful he gets, he always wears this tutu and tights. <laughs> and I find that to be so charming and, and in a way empowering about the character. And then there's so much other stuff in this, and in really just about every Lloyd Kaufman, Michael Hurst production that that I feel like on the surface level, like like looks. And, and so this this is, I'm, so I'm glad, I'm glad you, you brought this up um, in an affected high-pitched voice. I personally do not consider that transphobic, if only because no, 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 that's yeah. a goddamn cartoon character. <laughs> that it, that it's is a cartoon character, like... and it's you know any other movie, even nowadays, if you had a character like that, they would cut to it to one joke. Instead, they showed the character in combat fighting people. Like it's it's a part. It's not much of a part, but, but... it's. The character's got a lot of dialogue. The character can yeah, yeah. kick ass. <laughs> yeah, it's a a, a caricature uh, of sorts, but not. It's not like a one gag or people would go like, "Oh, isn't that weird? You have, uh, uh, you know, you talk that way or you have lipstick or whatever." Like, it's not pointed out. People don't make a big deal of people um, looking or acting uh, what a lot would consider different from the norm. And, and that's a big thing in all the trauma movies, really. Well, that's, that's also, their philosophy, to thine own self be true. Right. And it's also, like, when people want to be, like, dismissive or, like, talk shit about, like, superheroes. You're like, oh, it's just some guy in tights, you know what I mean? And I feel like the little, like, f you know, frayed tutu is just kind of just, like, a funny nod to that, kind of. Like, yeah, he is in tights and he kicks ass. He's in tights, he kicks ass. Um, I mean, the transformation sequences are quite well done, I think. You have, you yeah, have the, yeah. the kind of... Him in the bathtub, I think, is especially horrifying. You have these kind of pustules uh, oozing, and as the face transforms, and then like the air comes off and is floating in the tub. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, no. You have an iconic shot they reuse at the end of the film, and and I think they always use in in the sequels as stock footage or something. But of him, they clearly filmed it like a sunrise was happening of the Toxic Crusader or Avenger uh, running uh, at the top of this very big. Uh, street as the sun is coming up behind him. Oh, yeah, that's right. 
he has like the dumb sound effect, like the. <laughs> but he oh, um. So you, he so also the, the toxic talk. roar, which is yes. like iconic and used throughout the series. So they they talk. This is mentioned uh, in the audio commentary for Toxie Four, but apparently, like Trauma forgot how to do that. Troma forgot how to make that roar because there was such a gap between Toxie 3 and Toxie 4. And the audio engineers on Toxie 4 had to reverse engineer how that roar was done. And this is the way it's done. It's somebody, probably Michael Hers, just going, rawr, rawr, very deadpan into a microphone. And then they just slow it down. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's weird. They couldn't just lift the sound effect from some scene. In, well, sometimes you want a specific... Ones. A specific sound, though. Yeah, so, and the yeah, fidelity, I think, cadence was, to the RAR. Was probably there is, and it's, it's. I think to me, it's funny every time, even though it's used <laughs> a lot. And then you have the other big part of uh, Toxy. Uh, was, he's not called this until the second film, um, but this is Toxic Avengers nickname, and uh, his voice, which also changes from film to it film, cracked me up. Every mm -hmm. goddamn time he opens his mouth, I'm sorry, I don't know what came over me. It's that, like, very <laughs> square, like, you know, Christopher Reeves, like, you know, like, oh, New yes. York, train transportation is the economic way to get to work, you know? It's, but then it's, when he when hilarious. he goes in for the kill, he gets, like, a little, a little bit grittier, you know, you want the wheel? Here, yeah. take the wheel. And he, like, rips <laughs> the wheel off of the car and hands it to the guy. <laughs> I guess we ought to, you know, we ought to talk about some of the villains. Um, oh, yes, please. Because there's these, like, four, because there's, there's kind of an escalation of, of villains in this. But we start with um, with Bozo, Slug, Wanda, and Julie, these uh, four uh, muscle heads from the gym who are always bullying Melvin. Uh, and just, you know, they're also doing drugs, lots of drugs all over this movie. And one thing that, that they do is it turns out their hobby, and this is based on an urban legend that honestly, if you lived in a big city in America, you probably, your city has its own version of this urban legend. I know mine did, where they go out in a, in a customized sports car at night and they run people over and they compete and they score points based on who they run over and how they do it. And they also take pictures of it, and it turns Wanda and Julie on. So later, there's this wonderfully grotesque scene where they're masturbating to their Polaroids of their of their oh, crash God. victims, and it's just because like it's bad enough that they're bullies, but then but then they're also racist, murderous bullies. Yeah, they're, they're oh, and it's also a reference. Or... It's a reference too, I, I would think, as well to the original Roger Corman Death Race two thousand. Yeah, like kids are worth X amount of points. Elderly people are worth so many points. Um, yeah, there's yeah. a system. I love that movie. But I mean, uh, for, for, for filming a lot of the driving scenes in this, they looked at um, the the Road Warrior, the the second Mad Max film, and and literally oh, took it apart frame by frame. And you can see with some of the shots where they they have the the camera kind of that I don't. I think it's mounted. It might be mounted in some cases, like really close to the wheel, or like you. Yeah. You, well, you rarely see two cars in the same shot, but it still has some momentum and some excitement to it. Well, it's also 
features uh, another historical moment. It's the first trauma head crush because one of one of their kill sprees we see they run, try to run over a kid on a bike uh, and they hit him, but he's not dead. So they run over him again and they run over his head and the head just pops. Yeah, and they, all that was was like a melon in a wig and the melon was full of like chunky dog food oh. and giblets and and like and red syrup. Uh, and, and that's how they did it. But the but it's so well cut and the lighting is just so like you for a split second, you think their their head explodes. Now, this may be apocryphal, but in Lloyd Kaufman's book, everything you know, need to know about everything I need to know about filmmaking. I learned from the Toxic Avenger. He claims that someone who attended a screening of the Toxic Avenger called the FBI and thought that this was a snuff film and thought that they had really <laughs> run over a kid. And they and according to the story, he had to show a, an investigator from the FBI that scene frame by frame to show where the special effect cut in. Oh, my goodness. It's it's funny, too, because you've got like slashers coming up and everything like that. But there's always this kind of disconnect. You can always tell like it's a prosthetic when it's like a knife going through someone's head or whatever. And they don't but they don't skimp on the violence here and like the consequences of violence like that kid getting run over is pretty fucking brutal. Like you said, enough to fool people that it was a freaking snuff film. And, and that's a di and that's another difference between a trauma horror movie and a major studio horror movie. Kids are off limits in Hollywood horror movies. Tra yeah, exactly. In trauma, no one is safe. Right. Mm -hmm. and, <laughs> and it's and like a have, giallo in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as well, there's the uh, kind of concept here that you can. Um, it, it is trying to send uh, a message about the environment. In uh, specifically when um, the the Toxic Avenger gets to he gets to walk to his his home in the dump. Although the way like it looks like it's, it's pretty creative with how he kind of rearranges things. And as the camera just focuses on his feet uh, or his boots or whatever he wears um, down there, uh, you, you see there's a uh, a McDonald's quarter pounder with cheese foam container, which back in oh yeah. In the 80s, you had these iconic foam containers that I miss in some ways, but they were terrible for the environment. Uh, I, I remember when they came into the world, and I remember when they were finally retired. Slash, yes. and, and the main reason they were retired is a lot of communities started outright banning them, and it just was yeah. too much mm -hmm. of a hassle to have two different standards of container. And it's just like, no, not biodegradable. No, it's basically paper or uh, uh, wrapped over stuff, or probably wax paper or something wrapped over stuff, or you have the cardboard, right? Um but but also the other thing he he steps by is a, a paperback copy of a book by Richard Nixon. Oh yes, the six crises, and this this oh, is a running gag. Uh, I believe every Toxic Avenger film has a scene where we just see his feet walking through the dump, and he passes by some reprehensible books. <laughs> I love it. But it's you know it's very deliberate. It's pretty rare that things like this are, are an accident. If someone's reading a book or. It's I'm reminded a bit of, of how in um, the League of the Weapon films in particular, Richard Donner will put posters that just say, like, uh, meat is murder or end apartheid. Uh, the end apartheid, like very blunt political statements just in the background. The people don't comment, but like it's clearly framed in such a way that you can't not see it. Exactly. Yeah, and, and you talk about more like uh, political stuff. 
So it turns out like the main villain of this film is Mayor Peter Belgoody, uh, who is uh, who's who's like he's just a, like a corrupt mayor uh, and uh, his and, you know, he takes graft. Uh, he's connected to all these criminal syndicates. He runs a criminal syndicate uh, and he just uses the mayor's office as his own personal piggy bank and like sells off sections of Tromaville to become like dumps and plants and 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 th things that ruin the town for the people who live there. But then, you know, makes him a nice chunk of change. And it's so it's so great. Like and, and so you, you've already so you've got your corrupt politician and you've got, you know, how how they use their offices to enrich themselves as a big political statement of this film. But then also I, I, I had completely forgotten about this, but I love it. Is it one of his major henchmen is this police commissioner who is just straight up a Nazi. Mm -hmm. Like it's it, there's it's not subtext. He keeps slipping into German. He keeps clicking his heels. Oh yeah, and doing the Nazi salute, and he keeps talking about having people executed and exterminated. Like there's no there is no subtlety in there. It is all about ma making racism in the police department so so upfront. You know. Oh yeah, you see him do the salute at one point. He goes like Achtung. Like and, and, oh and. And this is another thing, because I remember in the 90s, I saw th this film kind of getting a lot of heat for just how, like, unrealistic the villains are, because they really oh, are just cacklingly evil in this, oh, yeah. in this crass, self-interested way. But, but recent events have shown us that's not an exaggeration. If anything, this movie is subtle in its portrayal of everyday <laughs> evil. Turns out there yeah. are people who are like that. Right. Just like... R.L. Ryan uh, is a character actor who uh, on the commentary um Blake Hoffman said it's probably you know the best uh the actor with the most professional film experience on the set he uh, appears in another trauma film class of Newcomb High as Mr. Finley but he was in some other kind of cult movies like Mannequin and Street Trash oh yeah and uh, unfortunately died at 44 of a heart attack um it's a shame he's really good like like if, if yeah he, it's like he he's not giving a camp performance as over the top as he gets, and and it, you can see his acting chops. And he uh, he he's really good at playing an asshole. <laughs> the mayor is <laughs> not a nice guy, and um, you have these scenes that that kind of go on for a bit too long. I think with the mayor is spelling out his his plan and so forth, but I think it's also because Lloyd likes to put messages in there. And also, you'll notice anytime they do one of those scenes, he always has floozies dancing around in lingerie for no reason. <laughs> mm -hmm. Another trauma staple. That's awesome. Yeah, uh, nudity is something I'm surprised we haven't talked about yet. Uh, it, it is a, it's a trauma staple. And especially at this time, you had a lot of um, topless women in, in movies, whether it made sense or not. And it's funny, and, though, because, like, there's a lot of gratuitous nudity, but it doesn't feel like, like, sleazy or or, or cheap. Well, it, true. It, it, and it doesn't feel like it's trying to be, like, titillating or anything like that. Mm -hmm. like, it's it's sort of matter, more European, I think, more matter of fact. And it's like, yeah, you know, usually the people are, are having sex in the middle of changing in a gym. Like, it's in a, a situation that makes sense. It's not. We, yeah, there's, there's always there's always a story reason for for even though there's a lot, lot of nudity in this movie, there's always a story reason why it's happening. And very often, it, like like the first like for instance, the first sauna masturbation scene with with like the Polaroids, uh, and there's a wonderful fake out where I think it's like uh, Wanda's uh, boyfriend Slug comes in 
and you're meant to think it's the Toxic Avenger because he's doing this weird walk and making noises and has this rag on. He's just pulling a prank on her. But then the second scene, it's a reversal. It actually is the Toxic Avenger. <laughs> and I just and so, love how over the top they are too. And like the 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 restaurant scene is just legendary. I I, I love that whole thing. And like the guy with the oh. face paint, I I wondered if that was a reference to um Baseball Furies. Yes, exactly. To Walter mm-hmm. Hill's uh, Warriors. Warriors. It has to be. I feel like got... it has to, has to be. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah these like there's this, just a pleasant day at uh, at a taco place literally called the Mexican place. And <laughs> and and this is another great thing. Uh, this is I, I wish so many more horror movies do because these these uh, these four or sorry, these three like this so i love there's a obscure marvel comic book called what the which was marvel self-parody it was self-parody of marvel comics made by the people who did marvel comics uh and it would really get in the weeds and you could really tell like what artists and writers had bones to pick with other artists and writers based on what they parodied and how but they did they did super villain personal ads and one of the personal ads was a supervillain trying to find an ethnically diverse cadre of street punks to be henchmen. <laughs> this, these street punks are straight out of that gag comic. Oh, that's great. It was what the from the early 2000s or the older? Uh, what the, it began, uh, what the was in the 80s. In the 70s, it was called Not Brand Eck, and it got canceled and brought back as what the in the 80s. And in, and it ran until uh, the early 90s. There was an attempt to bring it back in like 98 or 99 that sadly did not take, although it was a great triple-sized issue uh, that did. And there was an, another attempt in the 2000s to revive it as a robot chicken-style web series hosted by MODOK. And I don't know, I think that's lost media now. I don't think you can find that stuff anywhere. Um, but but I love but I really love this because you know they they really just brutalize the the staff and guests at this at this uh, taco place. And then the Toxic Avenger shows up and it's an amazing fight scene, amazing gore, there's arm ripping, there is uh there is and, and, and like he he dispatches every member of this group, but like using the stuff that is at the taco bar so like the the milkshake mixer he grinds a person's face off with the milkshake mix mm-hmm. mixer and i don't know if you've ever used that kind of mi- milkshake mixer they are dangerous yeah you don't want to get your fingers that. anywhere near that thing when it's spinning I've, i mean, I, I had to use one once. yeah they don't make I mean, them like that anymore they, they they pivot back and forth instead of making full rotations yeah i think for i mean the, the joke is I'm, I'm not even sure if it's a joke or not but like the ice cream machines at mcdonald's never work <laughs> yeah. yeah enough that enough people are, have complained with the i don't know if it's the it's not the fcc but it's, it's the some, security and exchange commission is it yeah they complain that you know whatever federal government board in the united states you can complain to about it because it's such an ongoing issue that upsets people for whatever reason but right i mean th- those old things are built like tanks and they're pretty dangerous i mean i, I used to work in a um in the mail room for the the department of uh an office at the department of engineering we had like stuff from the 1950s that could like chop your hand off but all all it was for is like chopping paper and it was just a really sharp blade attached to a uh, a metal um lever and also like way to go for like weaponizing restaurant equipment because like i don't know why more movies don't do this i mean you've got mm. deep fryers 
freaking milkshake machines, ovens. I mean, it's a freaking gallery of of potential. Sure. You, you, have, you could say, you know, the, the food being poisoned. I mean, Thrasher and I were mentioning that there's a lot, there's usually a lot of scenes of just random uh, politically motivated street gangs taking over fast food places in trauma films. And uh, I think one reason for it is you, you, you do get a lot of production value from there, but also you get free food for the crew from <laughs> so, yeah. filming at an actual uh, place that makes food, right? So Yeah. And, and there's also just some wonderful trauma absurdity. And also, I got to say, the, the scene where he puts the guy's hands in the deep fryer is amazingly brutal. And it shows you the magic of editing. There's only like a quarter of a second's worth of footage of an actual deep fryer frying. And no hands are in it, but it's cut in so fast, you think you're seeing someone's real hands in a real yeah. deep fryer. Um, but also, like, there's this, like, there's this, when they were doing the establishing shots of the Mexican place, if you're paying attention, they're like, wait, why are there two katanas on the wall of this Mexican place? And wouldn't <laughs> you know it, the baseball fury guy grabs one of the katanas and sword fights with Toxie. Explode When Defeated presents something really neat and full of meat. Those children aren't going to protect themselves in a brand new podcast series about everyone's favorite giant reptile. Godzilla? No, we already did that one. Rodan? No, nope, uh, we did that one too. Gorgo? Gamera. We're talking about Gamera. From turtles to medieval samurai golems on our new series, Demolition Die. Only on the HyperX Podcast Network. Video Death Loop is the show where we watch a short video clip on loop until we just can't take it anymore. Along the way, we'll try our best to make each other laugh and to hold out longer than the other guy. Come in on any episode. Video Death Loop, new episodes every Friday. Coming soon to HyperX.com, HB.com, and more fine retailers, the HyperX Cloud Alpha Wireless. The Cloud Alpha Wireless gets up to 300 hours of battery life, so you spend less time charging your headset and more time charging into the action. The dual chamber drivers enhanced by premium DTS Headphone X Spatial Audio provide reduced distortion, allowing you to hear audio cues with pinpoint precision. Up to 300 hours of battery, two chambers, zero wires. The new HyperX Cloud Alpha Wireless. And, and I, I do like too how it's um, the kind of, I don't know if other places do this, but uh, out, out here in the West Coast in the United States, we have a um, Jack in the Box and they have deep fried tacos. Mm. And, and that's how they're shown making the tacos in here. Oh, which yeah. um, is not as appealing as it sounds. Yeah, but no, it doesn't sound good. But two two pivotal things. Uh, one, again, talking about things that, that other movies won't show you. Um, there's a blind woman uh, uh, named Sarah who's in, enjoying lunch at this place. They they shoot her seeing eye dog. Yes. And oh, oh, and the way the the shot of the dog like dragging across the floor after it gets shot like that's quite brutal. It's yeah, and apparently like it it was like a trained dog that could act and like that was its like little trick like if it was a smooth surface he had trained the dog to kind of go flat and he could like spin it across the floor and slide it across the floor and they use that trick and it makes it really feel like he's been hit with such an impact it's knocked him back mm -hmm. uh and it's just like th that that squib shot through like the shag carpeting to to simulate the 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 bullet piercing the fur is it's so it is so brutal. I mean, really, it really makes you want to see Toxie rip these people apart. But Sarah, 
will then go on. He, you know, Toxie rescues her and she goes on to be his girlfriend. And, and this is like another, like a thing that I love is that she, she, well, first, I don't know if the actress is blind, but she has a really good job of never reacting to anything visual around her. Like, it's it's yeah. if she's not blind, it's one hell of a performance. But then she also there's a lot of like cheap jokes uh, surrounding her not being able to see, but they come so fast in so much like in such abundance that I can't help be won over by it. If this was any other movie, I'd be like, oh come on, st- stop picking on her. But like it just keeps happening, like five within one sustained shot. I can't. Yeah, the, the actress in this film gives a more grounded performance, and you have. Um... Some cartoony sound effects uh, in the mix, but not nearly as many as in the sequels, where it seems like you know every two steps she like bonks into something. Or oh, Andre yeah. Miranda, that's her. That's her also Andre... like when we get to this gag, uh, these gags that reminds me so much of like like a thirty screwball comedy with like yeah, Three Stooges because like yeah. it's referenced on the the commentary and and with the combat with the moves they do, you know, they didn't want to. Um, uh, uh, Lloyd Kaufman is big about safety first and um so they didn't want to actually poke someone's eyes so instead what do they do they film it upside down and in reverse and then have someone do the action in reverse and then you do it right and then you do it you know backward and it looks like you're poking someone in the eye mm-hmm. so it's like um, it's cheap tricks but they're very effective especially combined with tight editing cheap and effective and i completely forgot at the end of the film I mean, talk about production value. You have tanks and like military jeeps going around trying to to hunt uh, Toxie down. Right. You, yeah, you get two tanks, and and this is and this is another story uh, that's in everything I need to know about filmmaking. I learned from the Toxic Avenger, which is you know like which uh, which goes into sort of how that happened. He got so much more than what he asked for. There's so there's been so much virtual ink spilled about like. Uh, about uh, action movie productions, like playing nice with like the the U.S. military to get like certain military assets and things in uh, in in movies for production quality purposes, uh, you can totally undercut all that because the the way the way uh, Lloyd Kaufman got it uh, is that he just called like a local military base. And all he and all he wanted was like some people in National Guard uniforms, and so all he he just contacted the office of the base commander. Like, yeah, we're we're filming a local movie. Can you like send? Can you just like send some some young guys in uniform to show up for this one scene? And they started talking. And this is not just from the movie. I know a lot of people who have served in the military, and if any of them ever got any kind of like authority. They'll tell stories about this, but if you have any kind of authority at a military base, you have a bunch of horny young people, like, bored in a compressed area, and that is dangerous. So you're looking for anything you can do to fill their time. And so the base commander is like, well, you know, uh, I can send I can send everybody in uniform. Also, I got some Jeeps. Also, you want a tank? And And basically, the base commander turned it into a training exercise. Because he got the whole base to gear up and mobilize as if they were actually being called out. And like, and that's how you got a whole National Guard division and two tanks for the climax of this movie. And all he had to do was contact the base director directly, not work through any other offices. Because yeah. they're always looking for something for, for the people to do. And this was like 
ate up a whole day. <laughs> well, and a, a few years later, uh, Troma would do um, one of their more expensive movies, Troma's War, mm. which was, is filmed on a military base, and that was a lot more difficult to um, to work with the U.S. Army than the National Guard. And, and also at that sure time, you, you had um, uh, uh, the the military working with with Hollywood more and things like Top Gun, which was practically a recruitment film <laughs> for the also, uh, for the for the Navy. And uh, there's um like the scene where they're being deployed and you see like the the jeeps and stuff rolling out of the fort uh, out of the base. It just makes you wonder, like maybe he just hung out there and this was like oh every morning at nine they do a patrol around the base i'll just sit at my camera that morning and catch this <laughs> candid footage you that know? too sure sure it's not it's... uncommon I, I live near an air force base and they they do like you know air drills on an almost daily basis because like you said they're actually they're bored they don't have a lot to do most of the time hopefully they're not doing anything it, it depends and, where, uh, where they're stationed and, and what's going on but yeah and i mean and uh, unfortunately a lot of um troops get injured or killed just from screwing around at base trying to kill time. Yeah, which is unfortunate. Yeah, big time. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, I wait, there's something that I noticed during this watch that mm -hmm. I never noticed before. What's that? Um, so uh, after the opening narration of, of this movie, uh, when the credits kick in, uh, and we get this wonderful, like, sort of sustained track, the sustained shot of the camera <clears throat> moving through the health club, and we see a lot of a lot of recurring characters in this shot. We see a lot of our our villains in this shot, um, and it just kind of weaves through, and everybody gets a little bit of business to do. Well, when the Toxic Avenger assaults the health club to kill the uh, the coach who's dealing drugs, it is the exact same shot with all the same actors in the same positions doing the same shtick, but they all get interrupted because they all get terrified of the toxic Avenger and run away. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Also, it, uh, it was kind of fun watching in the health club here. I mean, the health club stuff was a, a big um, pop culture thing in the eighties. You know, the Olivia Newton jogs on let's get physical and, and things like that as well. Right. And jazzercise and all that. Yeah, just to see how much of this equipment had no electronics whatsoever yeah. compared to now when you go into a gym or or now the home gym has become a, a, a huge market. Um, I, I did some work for a, a major um, fitness company uh, on, on some of their apps and, uh, you know, it, everything has a computer in it basically has a has an Android tablet. And that's another <laughs> track in your every move. Yeah, and that's another interesting thing too. Is that like weaponize a gym, please? Like the same thing uh -huh. at a restaurant. Like, yes, yes, yes. You know those sure. weights with the pole that go down. It's like that's that's perfect business right there, and like kind of weirdly phallic in a way too. Um, we get a great head crushing scene with that. Oh, that's awesome. Totally. There's a lot of those um, machines in the gyms that are weirdly uh, sexual, especially the one that always makes me giggle is uh, it, it's typically used by women for the thighs but you're basically like go sitting down with your back against something sort of spread eagle and then just squeezing your thighs together open and shut oh yes the kegel sizer we call it uh but yeah yeah, yeah basically it's it, it's a uh machine for a very specific purpose <laughs> oh so another thing that kind of grounds this in the early 80s everyone's smoking at this gym i know i love it mm-hmm Paragon of health. 
not just that. I mean, before there were gyms, like the the real old workout guys, um, Sylvester Stallone did this one for to train for some of the Rocky stuff. Is like they would just go to a junkyard and start lifting rocks, mm. <laughs> like yeah. lifting boulders, lifting heavy things. Like it was just real, because uh, uh, no one wanted to pay money for stuff, right? So it was just yeah, whatever exactly. you had to do the to do the reps and make it kind of jerry rig or something um and it does really strike me watching this and uh, i thought this movie came out after the lost boys but it came out before but they're they're uh, i don't know if it's bozo or slug but the one with the red bandana looks an awful lot like Corey feldman the lost Boys. i know i kept thinking that but i wonder if we'll be talking about him later oh oh, that's right yeah he's in the series yeah yep it's uh Quite something, but Toxic Avenger, you know, it's it became a big, uh, big hit and really gave Troma a, a good shot of finances that it needed. And it, uh, the Toxic Avenger, it's just a title that you just don't forget. I would say a sequel, yes, for the Toxic Avenger. We're talking about the original 1984 one, uh, Thrasher. I am also going to give this a sequel, yes. I had so much fun revisiting this for the show this is a movie that that i i've watched quite a bit both on on tv and on dvd there are different versions the i'm fortunate enough to have the sort of uncut director's cut dvd but even it has some missing footage uh there was like there there's this overweight woman at the gym who has a lot of like who has a lot of good scenes, but there's a scene where she uses a fart to get revenge on Julie that is not in the director's cut, but it was on the cable cut. So it's always in my memory when I don't see it. Uh, I'm always a little bit disappointed. because I think it's a fun scene. I love that she gives Julie some comeuppance. It makes, makes her a hero uh, in a way. Well, one yeah, of the no, I'm did... glad you mentioned that with the unrated stuff, because unfortunately the only copy of the unrated films that survived are from the those DVD masters. It's low resolution. The the versions on the Blu-ray, I think, are the theatrical. Uh, not the same as the original theatrical versions, because those are vulgarized quite a lot, but they're, it's not the same as the unrated version, even though it's a higher quality uh, transfer. Yeah, and, and that's actually something is that the, they tried to play nice with the MPAA with this movie, uh, and that's as mm-hmm. a result, that is why there are so many different versions, the theatrical cut, the TV cut, the director's cut. Uh, and apparently the VHS director's cut wasn't the real director's cut. It was like an extended cable cut. Um, they talk about this in one of the behind the scenes features in the DVD. Like, this is a movie I would love to see remastered. I don't know how Troma could do that, but I would love to see a fully like remastered director's cut. And oh, something else I want to talk about. Every character gets like little bits of business and it implies that there's something more going on with them than what we see on screen the two guys driving the truck of industrial waste that melvin falls into (laughs) who do a lot of cocaine and then taking a cocaine break in front of the gym is what sets up the origin story the the guy in the passenger seat when we first see him he is making a noose and that that is never referred to (laughs) what the hell is he doing good question uh alex Sequel, yes. Oh yeah, and this is a this is definite sequel. Yes, like I said, I you know I had this impression of it that had gone all the way back to like you know my childhood growing up, and yet I had never actually watched the damn movie start to finish. So watching this, um, you know, in its entirety, um, in what I assume is is the right version of the film. I think the version I got ran like a 
average movie time, like 80 to 90 minutes. Um, but yeah, it was, it was so far out, such an experience and, um, a lot of fun. And this is like the level of like violence, gore and like, you know, reflexive humor that I would love to see more of in, in franchises that I think a lot of films are missing now, um, with too much, with too broad of an appeal. And I think it's just kind of this perfect level of like underdog, vigilante story and you know like revenge movie comedy romantic thriller it's just kind of got everything going for it so a uh, big sequel yes on that one you do wonder with uh the, this uh, remake of toxic avenger they finished filming with i believe um elijah what is in it but the, the lead i think is is peter dinklage from what i've been reading uh are they going to make toxic cute is he still going to be pretty ugly? I wonder what that design is going to look like and how the transformation sequence is going to be. I, I hope not. And yet, I could to, I could totally see some like jackass like studio executive being like, his the sides of his faces don't match. Make that symmetrical. Like right. I, there's so many ways Hollywood could bleed all the character out of this character. And I I am while I am cautiously optimistic because of the involvement of Peter Dinklage, I am prepared to be very disappointed. Yeah. So, I mean, with, with Toxic Avenger, it's, uh, among other things, it's become an off-Broadway musical. Oh, it's, yeah. Uh, they recently um, did a novelization of it that Lloyd Kaufman co-wrote. Oh, the novelization, I've read it. It is hilarious. Is it? Is it the oh, same story, or they just... It, pr- it pretty much is, but they, they, they do a lot more to sort of establish what's going on in Melvin's head as he becomes the Toxic Avenger and, like, how he perceives the world because of his mutated senses and... and and you know, you know, they talk about how he has an instinct to seek out evil and destroy it. And, you know, they the book gets into, well, what is it like if you actually had a sense that detects evil and compels you to massacre it? Um, there's also they also just do some funny literary tricks. Like there's a there's a there's a, a a chapter where there's like a note that the chapter came that 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 like the author was behind deadlines, but that they were owed a favor. And so there is a chapter in the book that is <laughs> this like it's done as if it was written by J.D. Salinger, as if as a favor J.D. Salinger was pressured to write a chapter <laughs> of the Toxic Avenger novelization. There you go. Um, oh, well, I think for for time we're running a bit, so let's let's skip pitch a sequel, and go on to what you're watching. Um, I've been watching a haven't seen the whole thing yet, but saw one of the four episodes of a documentary on Showtime called "We Need to Talk About Bill Cosby." Oh yeah, by by W. Kamau Bell, and I found it useful because it gave me a lot of context for. Bill Cosby's early career, which I wasn't especially um, familiar with. And it talks to um, people that worked with them, people that didn't, uh, you know, like like fans or modern day comedians or historians, but also people that were writers for him and stuff. And they they give the topic of Bill Cosby, I think, the, um, the complications it deserves. Um, because among other things, he was a, he was a pioneer in several uh, areas, and uh, they also were able to. Um, they had to go back and add some stuff later when, unfortunately, in the news, uh, Bill Cosby uh, on a technicality got out of jail. Although that's trying to go 
who um, there's like some civil case or several other cases that are ongoing. So maybe he'll be sentenced again. Yeah, I, th I think I think that's in part why why Bill Cosby's crimes sting so much is that he yeah, was um, he was an idol. He was an inspiration. He did a lot of great things. And then when you find out the the just abysmal crimes he committed, it just feels like such a betrayal. Especially in light of, uh, in oh, what was it like two thousand? Was it two thousand four or two thousand five? And he gave a speech saying that a lot of um, African Americans in the United States like weren't doing enough to raise their kids right, and like he was just pretty lambasting of them. Yeah, in in uh, the early two thousands, he entered a real go to bed old man phase of yeah, his yeah, career. Yeah, yeah, just the big time. I mean, it's where and uh, Norm Macdonald had a great uh, Bill Cosby joke about it. Where people say like, well, the worst thing about Bill Cosby was the hypocrisy. And he's like, the hypocrisy is not the worst thing. I think there's something else like which <laughs> <laughs> is a, a amusing way to look at what is ultimately a very, very sad situation. Um, but it, it's 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 well done. It's thoughtful the way they do these different clips where the first uh, episode ends is uh, Kind of during the watch riots and you had uh footage that i had never seen of bill cosby a with a mustache which looks really strange looking um just because he's he's almost always clean shaven and everything else would be him talking about why uh african americans in in some ways have to do the the looting and the rioting on such a big thing just to get noticed mm -hmm. and it's like wait bill cosby saying that like it i mean it's also conscious of when he said it but that there's stuff in there that throws you for a loop and it doesn't give easy answers. And there's just a lot of, it, it's well-researched. Uh, I would almost want to see like a, a book on the same, like a, a, a book that accompanies the series as well. Cause there's certainly just, there's stuff there. They must have researched that's not in there, but it's, it feels pretty comprehensive to me so far, even after just one episode, it reminds me of that OJ Simpson documentary. Right. That's like six hours long. That kind of goes, into every little thing about it gives it gives you context to kind of re-examine stuff in a different way. Um, Alex, what have you been watching? Uh, let's see. Recently, I watched um, 101 Films Blu-ray of uh, Sly Stallone's uh, directorial feature, Paradise Alley. Ah, yes. Yeah, I lamented to you, the both of you about it a little bit, mm -hmm. but it, you know what, like. I have to say, I, I did not like it at first. Like, the first 20 minutes really dragged, and I didn't like any of the characters. It's just, they were just so, like, aggressively dumb. And, like, Stallone, it felt like Stallone was doing, like, an impression of himself. Like, hey, yo, hey, we're gonna race, you're gonna run, smoke a cigarette, hey, you're gonna come over my place. It was like, oh, I just, I wish these guys would shut the hell up. Um... And then when the wrestling narrative gets going and the stuff of the brothers really starts to take shape, um, it, it's it really won me over. Um, I think Stallone's doing some really interesting things as a director. Um, the the final showdown fight is is just like Bravura stuff. I mean, I think it's brilliantly lit, brilliantly shot, really well performed. And also, you get some uh, a little supporting role from Tom Waits. I thought that was cool. Um, and uh, Terry Funk, man. Hmm. Funk man, you know that's uh that's wrestling royalty right there. And Joe Spinell's in there, of course, another uh, Stallone alum. Um, yes, and, and 
And and the visuals of like the wrestling match at the end where you have water in the uh Yes, it's beautiful. Yeah, you have water in the rain with the just shot and a lot of these lawn shots. Like it's not of course there's some slow motion, but it's not like to the ridiculous degree of Rocky Four or something where right. it works really well. It's very artful. I I it really hit me then, you know, that the one like I said, just I felt like this movie just kinda needed like it just took its time getting together, but once it starts going, it, it really works. And also referencing what you said earlier, there's a scene where they're out by the bay lifting giant rocks as like a workout <laughs> regime. Yeah, I was like, it's synchronicity, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. It's, uh, he, I mean, there's a lot of scripts that Stallone wrote around that time that never got produced that I wish they'd, they'd published uh, someday. I mean, one, he's been, I think the Stallone's big dream project is to do a biopic on Edgar Allan Poe. That'd um, be so cool. At one point meant for Stallone to play the lead, believe it or not, although I, I, I think he's a bit old for that now. Uh, yeah. Another one was about a man who only ate bananas, and I'm not joking. Like, he's, there's a lot of very strange things he's mentioned over the years and, and trying to figure out something that could get uh, financed so, one way or another. So so hear me out. Mm-hmm. Sylvester Stallone and Frank Stallone write, direct, and produce and star in the life story of the Collier brothers. Hmm. Oh, not bad. And, and, and for anyone who doesn't know, the Collier brothers were wealthy New York eccentrics who died in a newspaper maze inside a hollowed-out warehouse. What? That they, that they owned. Ah, that's that's something else, man. The one I was thinking the other the other day when I was doing all this sort of um, you know, a lot of house uh, uh, remodeling stuff for, for um, just kind of organize things a bit around here, and so I was listening to podcasts and sort of thinking, and I was wondering, hmm. What if you did a remake of Amadeus with uh, Stallone as Salieri and Schwarzenegger as Mozart? <laughs> and I think on, on some level that could be very good indeed, if not absurdist, but sort of a commentary on their careers. And um, uh, although Stallone, you know, writes and directs quite a lot of his stuff that, that Schwarzenegger never really did that so much, but um, or at least didn't pursue the credit for it as much. Right. And, I think that, you know, the one uh, is a more populist versus the more artful person. It's uh, I think that you could have something there, but who knows? Um, or I think it'd be Schwarzenegger would be Bach, because uh, then it'd be, yeah. I'll be Bach, right? So <laughs> I'll be Bach. It's terrible. Uh, Thrasher. Who does Bruce Willis play? <laughs> who does who? Who does Bruce Willis play? <laughs> Bruce Willis would be the... Um, the Emperor of Prussia? That, that fits, yeah, because he's kind of the dick. Yeah, sure. <laughs> a few too many notes. Yeah. The hey, a few too character. many notes. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, Thrasher, what have you been watching? All right. So uh, it, it, going back to going back to exploitation roots. Uh, so I watched a movie whose trailer is heavily featured in Real Wild Cinema, a B a B and C movie showcase that I've talked about uh, before. Uh, and so it's a movie called Super Chick, which is ostensibly an action comedy directed by Ed Forsyth, screenplay by Gary Critcher, uh, starring uh, Joyce Gilson as the main as the as the titular Super Chick, Tara B. True, who 
is who later in her career became a professional psychic medium and claimed to be one of Nancy Reagan's psychic advisors. Although apparently the Reagan White House issued a statement denying that while they were still in office. Um, but anyway, uh, the trailer really tries to make you think this is some sort of like woman James Bond movie without ever actually saying it's a spy movie because uh, it just shows her like globe trotting and getting into martial arts fights and like hat and like seducing various men. Um, that is not what this movie really is. <laughs> this movie, well, first and foremost, the plot does not kick in until about two thirds of the way into the movie. <laughs> but, uh, but Tara, she is, uh, she is, uh, uh, she is a flight attendant or back in the day, what would have been called a stewardess. And when she's working on the airplane, she wears a horrendous brunette wig. Like it is, it's a wig. Mm. So fake. You got to wonder why every character on a plane doesn't say, Hey, why are you wearing that wig? Um, <laughs> to, to hide all your regular hair, but her natural hair color is blonde. And whenever she has a layover, she has a different boyfriend in each city where she has a layover and has these like little sort of comedy sketches of her, having having an encounter with one of these these boyfriends and she goes through the cycle of boyfriends like two or three times in the movie before the mm -hmm. plot really kicks in where one of her boyfriends who owes money to the mafia tricks her into carrying a package on a plane containing i think mob money but then the mob finds out about it and the mob tries to hijack the plane this is not as exciting as it sounds yeah oh, wow. this is like how, how is the mob portrayed in this is it like every Italian stereotype come to life or they don't they don't go over the top but that's clearly the type of mobster they're trying to be um it's it's mainly just sort of like mugs in suits uh are, are their mobsters uh and then you know at the end she ends up almost by accident using her karate skills to like stop the mob from hijacking the plane and becomes famous and gets interviewed on the news and her wig falls off and then all of her boyfriends see her on the news and so now, mind you, then she's in a hospital in a cast. We never saw her get injured. So I don't know. It feels like something else happened to her after she left the interview and all her boyfriends show up at the same time uh, to try to like win her over and get her to marry them. And it sort of all ends with them agreeing to all be her multiple boyfriends. This movie is not. It's not as sexy as it thinks it is. It's not as funny as it thinks it is. It's a movie that's so bad. It's not good. There's one standout. John Carradine is in this movie. And this was from a pretty bleak period in John Carradine's career where he wasn't turning down any roles whatsoever and was appear would just appear in anything. And he plays, oddly enough, he plays a retired B-movie, billionaire B-movie actor named uh, like, like Igor Smith, who she meets him because she's answering a personal ad he, he's basically looking for a young woman to do like bondage games with. And they, and amazingly enough, they have a great comical banter back and forth. And, you know, there's, there's this bit and, and keep in mind, he's a very old man at this point. And there's this bit, you know, where, where he's like, of course you can trust me. And if anything goes wrong, my mother's here. He's like, you, you, you live with your, you live with your mother. Of course I do. And then he just calls out, Hey ma, I got another one. And then you hear him like off camera doing like a woman's voice. Going, That's nice, son. Clean up after. <laughs> What's it called again? A super chick from 1973. Okay. All right. Uh, I from, have from, to see it now. 
from Crown International Pictures, The Mark of Infamy. Oh, yes, please. What else did the director do? Oh, gosh. Let me see. Directed by Ed. Uh, you know, I am not. I'm going to have to jump onto IMDb with this. Let me see. What else did the director do? Because I'm sure if you've done one Crown movie, you probably did mm-hmm. seven Crown movies. <laughs> so let's see. Ah, oh, it's loading up now. So Ed Forsyth, director of Super Chick. Uh, he also did Caged Men, Inferno in Paradise, The Ramrodder. <laughs> uh, Rin Tin Tin, Hero of the West. He was an editor on that. Uh, what was Man in the Iron Cage on any Sunday too? Oh, he did ch- another Crown classic, Chesty Anderson, U.S. Navy. Chesty yes. Anderson. Gotta love it. Uh, the the free movie you just got in your head is better than the actual movie. Yeah. Like, oh, that's often the case with these things, but not the case with Toxic Avenger. But yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's speaking there's of this which, great so, clip yes. of music they keep using. Oh, but yeah, go ahead. So next week we will be talking about Toxic Avenger Two. Part two. Part two. Excuse me. It does not have a subtitle. That's surprising because the third one does. <laughs> <laughs> This one came out in 89, so, you know, a good five years later. And uh, among other things, Toxie looks different. It They actually filmed some of it in Tokyo. And um, while they were in Tokyo, Japanese businessmen offered Lloyd uh, a little over a million dollars to make a Japanese, more family-friendly superhero film. And then mm-hmm. he made Sergeant Kabuki Man and nice. added a lot of gore and stuff and pissed off his investors. <laughs> yeah, it, it's fascinating. The, the making of the making of Toxic Avenger Part Two changed the course of the studio just as much as the success of of the original Toxic Avenger did. We will have a lot to talk about the studio's history in, in the next part. Oh wow! Not just that, but also it was um, one of these things where. Uh, the, the classic scenario where they film so much footage, they just make two movies out of one. Well, oh, yeah, there's a whole story about the production, too, that we'll have to talk about. <laughs> yeah, so a lot going on with the Toxic Avenger Part 2, which we'll talk about next week. I like on, on the poster for it, it's uh, the, the quote from the New York Times says, genuinely funny. <laughs> <laughs> That's as passive aggressive as you can get with the <laughs> backhanded compliment, as the saying goes. Um, and yet, you know, Troma, it, it's a uh, toxic Avenger is such a big part of it that the O in the logo of Troma is toxic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but he became he became their Mickey Mouse. He was their mascot by that point. Mm-hmm. Certainly. So. Um, and again, we are part of the Hyper X podcast network i'll be sure to look up information about that online listen and... to us on hyper x hey oh yes and we're on stitcher and all these other things as well and we're everywhere everywhere pretty much um so uh you can follow me on twitter at matwbt also um i've been doing more stuff on youtube lately check out my youtube at youtube.com sequelcast yes i want to change the name of my youtube because it doesn't have anything to do with the show however <laughs> i can't do it until i get a certain amount of followers which is just youtube being annoying and now they change i guess it's been this way for a bit alex you, you might know more than me but you, you can't get monetization now on youtube unless you have at least a thousand followers oh yeah that 
that that sounds about right. Yeah. Um, and because it was a hundred, which isn't too hard to get, but a thousand is just like, I know. And like, I just go through like, like bursts of follower getting, and I don't know how the hell it happens or how to achieve that, but it's, it is, it's a whole thing. Whenever that happens to me, I assume it has to be bot accounts for some reason. Yes. I don't know. I, I interact with some of my commenters and we have some pretty good back and forth and that helps at least maintain some kind of regulars, but it's just true of almost anything I do, but like the stuff I put no effort in gets the most views. Like I, I, I did a, a stupid, they have this thing called YouTube shorts, where I think it's like 15 seconds or something really short like that. And I filmed a, a black and white thing with me boiling chicken and I got like 3000 views. <laughs> I don't understand it. Yeah. I posted a picture. It's like a two second clip of uh, Christopher, Christopher Lee rolling his eyes on the set of Dracula AD 1972. And that got like a bajillion views. But I think the most viewed thing is a um, I did, I made a music video for a Leon Russell song, and you know he's a very oh, popular fun. popular musician, so naturally that's going to get a lot of views. But I I think it's a really cool thing that I've done. It was a, a Vin Vendor's uh, road film collection to um, Stranger in a Strange Land. Mm, right. Um. Well, what's your uh, YouTube channel and and stuff? Oh Alex? yeah. My Twitter handle is CrabNebula1914, and my YouTube channel is called The Trailer Project, uh, featuring trailer commentaries for various movies that I select practically at random, and then also some experimental short films as well. Um, recently covered uh, Norman Mailer's Tough Guys Don't Dance, so check that out. They have a lot in common with cats. Yes. Yes, it does. It does. It's... Uh... I mean that. I mean, talk about a title that gets a movie in your head. Tough guys don't dance. That's that's one for the books. Uh, Thrasher. So you can follow me uh, on Twitter at wt2art, uh, and of course, uh, my latest uh, 100 oddities for an arcane academy is still going strong on drivethroughrpg.com and on a number of sites that sell tabletop gaming PDFs. So check it out. Also. Uh, check out uh, check out uh, the uh, my wife's Etsy shop, uh, a punch in the art, uh, which also sells a lot of my enamel pins and stickers and microfiber cloths. Uh, you may have heard some rumors about possums appearing on that store. Well, check out check out a punch in the art and find out how true those possum rumors are. Seems there. like possums sold out very quickly, is what I heard. Oh yes. They, and, and so there were some pre-order possums. Those also sold out. So we're we're restructuring the possum issue. Are you going to do another round of fundraising with Kickstarter, you think? Or? Uh, yes, but probably for another enamel pin project that's still uh, in its infancy right now. Good, good, good. All right. So uh, next time we'll be talking about Toxic Avenger Part 2. I like that it says Part 2, like the Godfather. Like, that's so... Yes. <laughs> pretentious <laughs> holy classic. shit of course i always forget this part of the show thrasher and you always remind me right as i'm about to end it let's do sequel scene uh why don't, why don't you set the scene so this, this, uh, this is this is reenactment. very early this is after the opening credits uh this is bozo julie slug uh this is yeah this is bozo julie and slug uh hanging out in the hot tub talking about how much they hate melvin the mop boy at the janitor mm. so bozo julie slug and Melvin uh, are uh, our characters in this little scene. Okay, I, I would like to play Bozo. I'll do Julie. See, I will be slug. Thrasher, can you also can do, do the Melvin? stage directions? 
What? Oh yeah, I'll do I'll do stage directions, then someone else can do Melvin. See, so, um, um, see, so I'll do Melvin I'll, as well, I guess. I'll do Bozo and Melvin. Sorry, oh, is that Alex? Oh no, yeah, you're good. Okay. All right. So, uh, Bozo talking about Melvin, who is clumsily mopping. Would you take a look at that fucking guy? The mop boy can't even mop right. He's so stupid. He's always got that shit-eating grin on his face. What's he so happy about? I hate that mop boy. Melvin approaches. I think that creep's coming over here. Who's the stage direction? Oh, sniff. I thought you were going to sniff. <laughs> oh. Julie, you, uh, you smell something? Oh, pee you. What's that stink? Sniff. That's funny. I don't smell nothing. <laughs> Woody Allen starring Melvin Junko. Yes. Oh, that's another thing we'll talk about in the next movie. Why character names change? <laughs> Very nice. Including the uh, romantic interest changes from Sarah Claire. For some reason. <laughs> yes. I just want to listen to your body talk. Body talk. I love the sound of your body talk. Body talk.